Welcome to Gloss, or the Gorgeous Ladies of Snowboarding and Skiing, an ongoing series between Crude and Blower Media. In this episode, I talk with snowboard pioneer Tina Basich. Tina was among the first women in snowboarding who redefined what it meant to be a female snowboarder. This meant making constant decisions to push against conforming to a man's world, because what you do in the present determines the future. It meant bucking stereotypes taking the same lines and riding the same courses as the guys did. It meant creating a lane where women were respected for their abilities rather than overlooked or talked down to. Snowboard gear was a big piece of this. Back then, all the clothing and the gear were made for men. The clothing was too baggy and the boards were too wide for women. So for things to fit properly, they had to modify everything. But once snowboard brands began making gear specifically for women, Tina says that their abilities and their skills improved drastically. Another big move toward equity in snowboarding was the freedom to be yourself. To be that girl on the mountain with a day-glow orange scrunchie and snow pants. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com dot com slash crude magazine that's patreon dot com slash crude magazine and pick the subscription tier that works for you i want to thank everyone subscribed at the company man tier these are the people who have subscribed to the crude patreon for fifty dollars or more trina duber seward brewing company the grind coffee shop in juno Derek adolph blue and gold board shop Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Tina Basich. These days, Tina says she's narrowing down her responsibilities, preferring to focus on the simpler things in life. There's her business, a gift line of designs called My Favorite Things, her art, and she helps her daughter Addison navigate the medical and social aspects of having scoliosis. It's a diagnosis that requires as much support as possible. For this, Tina draws courage and inspiration from many facets of her life, including snowboarding. So here she is, Tina Basich. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! You recently had a birthday, didn't you? I did. I got to go out into the Redwoods and celebrate uh, my 52nd birthday. And at this age and this time in my life, that's where I want to be is out in the Redwoods with my family, just kind of, you know, recharging. So I just came back from that trip and getting ready to um, 
make plans to get back out to those coastal redwoods up in Northern California again. I love it. Is that kind of a pilgrimage for you? It's definitely, um, my heart draws me there and I've always had a connection with the forest and um, grew up camping with my family and we lived in a teepee at one time. And so we're definitely the outdoors kind of family and my brother and I doing snowboarding for so many years and just being connected with the mountains. But there's definitely something special about the redwoods um, to me. Um, I guess it just kind of reminds me of the fairy forest in my childhood fairy tale stories. <laughs> and you said you lived in a teepee up there for a while. Well, we did in not up in the redwoods. We actually lived in a teepee. My whole family did in 19, in the eighties, mid eighties, um, when we built our house. So we, my mom always wanted to live in a teepee and we bought this land and we were going to build a house. And so next thing you know, we were living in a teepee and had a refrigerator with an extension cord to our neighbor's house and a telephone on the fence that was connected to our neighbor's line. And we are that kind of family where we don't hesitate to say yes, like, let's do it. Mm -hmm. And I've kind of always had that thread in my, my whole life is like, I really am recognizing now that I really um, love to just try new things and new experiences. And with snowboarding, I took any, every opportunity to um, get involved in different ways and so I really um, am thankful for those childhood upbringings that my parents have focused so much on being present in the moment and bringing opportunities and, and going for it. Do you know why your mom always wanted to live in a teepee? Um, she's funny because I say like, what were you and dad doing in the 60s? And she's like, well, I don't know. I wasn't really aware of like, all the hippie 60s stuff, but I had a garden and I had sheep and we had chickens and I did weavings, you know, like mm -hmm. she's just kind of a, um, really always been drawn to like the way of life, the simple way of like living off the land and making the best out of what you have. And so, um, growing up, we always camped and got into the outdoors that way with tent camping and, um, at home, we were always building tree forts and things like that. But um, when it came down to living in a teepee, we just went for it. And then we did have a uh, break from camping after that. We were so over it um, <laughs> because the house was supposed to take like three months and it took like six to eight months before we could actually move in. So we did take a little bit of a break uh, from the great outdoors and enjoyed our house for a while there. Have you found that maybe as you've gotten older or maybe you've always been like this, but as you've gotten older, you, you gravitate toward kind of the simpler things in life. Definitely. Um, I think all the phases of your life, like when you're young and free and just uh, flying by the seat of your pants. I mean, we were snowboarding and had a paid sponsorship and traveling the world from all of my twenties and that was just the time of our life. We had little responsibility. Um, I was able to buy a home out in Utah to be close to the powder that I love there so much and travel. And, and then in the thirties, I started having kind of a, 
a draw to wanting to put roots down and have a family. And so kind of along the way, you kind of gather things. And then now I'm kind of in a phase where I just want to have a little bit of that freedom again of going on adventures. Um, and I definitely feel like I'm narrowing down my responsibilities with uh, projects that I have going on just so I can really dive into the ones that I love, like my artwork um, and my business and my family and have time for those and not have too much on my plate. Mm-hmm. So you brought up your artwork. You recently had an art show called Bent Not Broken. What can you tell me about the art involved in that show? Um, that was my first solo show. So that was a big thrill for me. I've always been an artist and traveled snowboarding with my paint set on down days, sitting up in Alaska while it rained, Mm -hmm. um, in those hotel rooms up there, I was always doing art, waiting for the sun to break. Um, so I've always had art in my life, but my daughter who was diagnosed in 2017, with scoliosis and that was shocking to us and the first time I saw her MRI up on the you know light screen um, I realized that this was a path we were taking that was unexpected and we dove right into her treatment and in that process uh, part of it for me was creating art with her MRI mm-hmm. and so I took those images and in incorporated it in a mixed media type artwork, which is fairly new to me. Um, And so over the last three years, I've been developing my art with that. And it's just been um, very time consuming with the treatment that she undergoes. But as time has freed up, I've been doing my artwork. And so um, as of lately, I've been giving myself more time with that. And definitely with the pandemic and shutdown and having you know, time at home, I was so thankful to have my artwork. So having this show was with a local gallery uh, at the Center for the Arts in Grass Valley, and they presented it, uh, Bent But Not Broken, A Scoliosis Journey Through Art. And it was really amazing to me to just see it all together um, in one show. And I had information there for scoliosis awareness. I told stories, um, on the wall with poster boards of words of our journey. And it was during June, uh, which is Scoliosis Awareness Month. So it was just really encompassed a few uh, main things for me to share. And uh, so I was just so rewarded by that experience. And it just makes me want to do more art for sure. Mm -hmm. And Addison's doing great. We're pushing through her treatment. She's 14 now. So we've been doing this for three and a half years since she was 10. So she's almost to the four year mark in October and her back because of this treatment is staying in a safe position out of surgical range, which is not always the case three and a half years into diagnosis. So we feel very, very fortunate to be able to afford this treatment. It's outside of our insurance, um, part of the art, all the funds from the artwork go towards that. And we just feel blessed beyond that we're able to do that treatment that's based out of California. So we are uh, the lucky ones for sure. And Addison was able to make such great progress because it was caught super early in her life, correct? Yes. Scoliosis is one of those things where the earlier you catch it, the easier, um, 
attempt you have to kind of straighten the back. They kind of describe a 10-year-old spine as a twig of a tree. You can still kind of push it into place and manipulate it with bracing and exercise and have it stretched and elongated so that it's uh, relieving that pressure and that tension that the spinal cord's pulling down on. Mm -hmm. um, and as the spine grows to maturity, when you're like 16 to 18 years old, it's like a tree trunk. So it's harder to maneuver after it's fully grown. So by catching it at an early age, at age 10, we were able to do bracing and stretching um, to keep that spinal cord lengthened. And so her most, most root cause of scoliosis, not all cases, but in her case, the spinal cord is shorter than the spine. And so it holds the spine down. So it buckles out to the side and those are the curves of the spine. So we do everything we can to, to stretch that spinal cord out to meet the length of the spine. It's kind of hard to explain. <laughs> it's a, a major, um, a lifelong task to continue that. It doesn't just go away, but at spine maturity, once the spine stops growing, then it eases up because it's not happening so fast, the growth. Are all of these medical procedures or done by a doctor or are there ways that you and your family can help elongate her spine? Is that what you said? Yeah, it's it's um, the the practice that we go to is chiropractic base. It's a group of doctors that are chiropractors, um, a group of chiropractors, and they're 15 years into their treatment that they've developed for scoliosis treatment. And they had, um, the main doctor had children with scoliosis. So he was set out to find a better way than just surgery. And there are lots of different treatments out there and, and many um, wonderful ways to tackle it. Um, this one is a little bit alternative in the way of thinking of strength of lengthening the spinal cord um, and not just bracing to slow down the process. It's bracing to correct and really stretch that out. So it's, um, it's not the typical way to do it. I hope that this can be offered uh, more mainstream in the future because it is working for us and scoliosis mm -hmm. is considered something that's not curable. You just wait till it gets the curves get above 50 degrees and then you operate before they start pressing into your organs or in really bad cases, your heart and causing other complications. So it is a um, severe, can turn into a severe condition. Um, and not always, if you catch it early, does it mean you're going to defeat it? It's um, there's some children that are going to the clinic that are eight years old with 50 degree curves already. So they, you can imagine how much growth they still have to get through before they're 18 and going through puberty growth and growth spurts where you grow five inches in a year, mm -hmm. things come on more rapidly. So it's harder to get ahead of the curve, you might say, you know, and stay ahead of it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, um, unexpected challenge. We, we, you know, weren't expecting something like this to come into our life, but um, we are doing the best we can with it. And Addison is committed to getting better and, and we do not let it bring us down. We try and, um, just bring it in as, as part of what we have to deal with and, and do, and she's a happy 14 year old. So that's the main thing. <laughs> and kids are resilient. Yeah, they are. And I, I hear that a lot from other moms and, 
as we support each other through this and other families and they are resilient and we can only hope that it's harder on us emotionally than it is on them. Um, but there's lots of kids that struggle to get up and walk every day. And there's people that can't even put their feet on the ground and stand up out of bed. So I'll, I'll take whatever comes our way and we're just grateful that we can handle it. Mm -hmm. Have there been any moments when that's hit you where it became, I guess, more real than just a saying, you know, that kids are resilient? Yeah, it does. Um, does hit me in ways and I see her go in waves where she can handle it. And then we kind of fall apart for a little bit at a, you know, we get a MRI and there's a fallback where we lost some degrees, um, in the treatment. And, you know, this whole scoliosis journey is just, we lift each other up and then we fall apart and then we lift each other up. And so there's definitely ups and downs. It's not just a straight path to the finish line because you don't even know where the finish line is mm -hmm. so for us um i definitely see see it coming at us in waves and just know how to handle it by now but i i am so thankful that it's scoliosis that it's something that's physical in her body um not affecting her development or brain or other things there's lots of people in the clinic that have scoliosis that are blind, that are dealing with major other conditions. So I mm -hmm. find myself just like, please let it just be scoliosis. Coming from a sport like snowboarding, where you were constantly putting yourself in potentially dangerous situations, what was it like when you found out Addison had scoliosis? It was shocking to me. I would have to back up and say, when you become a mother, Mm -hmm. that's when everything changed for me because I looked back and saw footage of me out running avalanches and remembering jumping out of helicopters and doing things that were risking my life and thinking like, how did my mom answer the phone <laughs> and hear the story of me out running an avalanche, but we're going to go back tomorrow to this different location because the helicopter pilot said he would take us further in mm -hmm. and say, go get it, honey, like, uh, follow your dreams. Bye. Like, how <laughs> does she do that? Like, now that I'm a mother, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's just this feeling like you want to just keep them in this safe bubble and it's just not the reality of it and things happen. And so um, definitely becoming a mother and looking back on my career thanking my lucky stars I got through it alive like we not everybody was so lucky and not everybody's consequences came down to you know broken bones or bruises we had people that lost their lives and people that are paralyzed in our family of snowboarding and so it is an interesting thing to look back on because when you're in the moment and you're an athlete and you are on your game and I can do anything I am superwoman on the snowboard that mindset, that's my game face. And that's that zone you get in that they talk about. It is real. Mm -hmm. And I do feel um, like I have superpowers. Like I just could go do whatever I wanted. And just being a woman and a girl in this sport, it doubled it. Like I wanted to prove that I could do it too. So, you know, even in Alaska, we'd go jump off cliffs and They'd be like, Tina, which run are you going to do? I'm going to be, I'm doing the same one they did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, you know, I'm going to follow that fast Frenchman down the hill and 
I'll see you at the bottom. So a lot of it is um, empowers me to to do more. And then when scoliosis hit me, it did, you know, plow me over like a ton of bricks and knock me off my feet. But, um, you know, I've I've learned through life experiences to get ups and keep going. So um, I don't I don't don't let it break me down too much. Mm -hmm. It's definitely just part of our life now. And and the diagnosis uh, came in waves because I didn't even know what scoliosis was. So when somebody says you have scoliosis, you don't automatically think, oh my gosh, we're going to have to deal with this for the rest of our lives. We're going to have to brace for seven years. We're going to have this financial crunch on our family. We're going to, which treatment do we choose? Is it worth it to do this one we believe in? Is it not? Like all of those things didn't come in the moment of diagnosis. When it came, they said, your daughter has scoliosis or may have scoliosis. We need to get an x-ray. And that was just at a wellness check at 10 year old wellness check. I was like, wait, what? Isn't that where your back's curved? She doesn't look curved. Wait, mm -hmm. no, you can kind of see something. Like it was kind of unfolded as it went. Um, so it, it was intense, but it got a little more intense as we got into the treatment of it and what we actually had to do to get, to get this under control. Mm -hmm. Do you think that you'd let Addison become a snowboarder at the level that you rode at if she wanted to? I would because I have to give her the same gift my parents gave me, which is follow your heart and you'll have no regrets. Like you have to go for it and go for your dreams, no matter how big or small they are. So I, I'm definitely conscious of making sure that I allow that space for her. And at the same time, of course, I want to protect her. Her body with scoliosis is maybe not as easy to take falls like I did or, you know, not as good for her back to have all that compression and flat landings and all of that stuff uh, with her bracing where she wears a torso brace. Um, we weren't able to go snowboarding, so it hasn't been on our radar, but um, I did just buy a season pass this year, which is the first time I've had one in 20 years. So I am ready to go back up and bring her along if she so chooses. I really like what you just said about Addison and having to let her get into snowboarding because you would have to give her the same gift that your parents gave you. Yeah, it is a gift. It is because I had, you know, I was graduating from high school. I was in love with snowboarding and some of my friends went to college because their parents required it and this and that and this and the other. And I got to go to art school. I got to go to graphic design during the summer and go snowboarding in the winter and take it on. Like my parents didn't hesitate to help me follow that dream. And thank goodness they were supportive like that. Cause what an experience I had snowboarding professionally for 20 years, mm -hmm. follow, following the snow, like with my friends, with somebody else paying the bills, like, oh my gosh. I mean, if you, we didn't know it was going to be that at the time and we still were going for it because we didn't, it wasn't even a, you know, considered a sport when we started. It was like a fad that was going to go away to most people. And, you know, some of my, um, some people looked at me like, oh, you're not going to college and you're going snowboarding. Like, how long do you think that's going to last? And, you know, so for me, 
I went to school for what I wanted. I wanted to learn about graphic design and Photoshop and all of this design work. I wanted to design clothes. And so with my snowboarding path, I really got to tap into everything that I ever wanted to do. So I got to design graphics. I got to design snowboards and snowboarding clothing um, with Lisa Hudson uh, in the industry and Shannon Dunn as my co-pilot along the way. We got to design women's snowboarding clothing and launch that and have pro models for the first time for women. And um, I didn't hesitate to take every opportunity to be involved with my sponsors, with even with ad ideas and um, our Boarding for Breast Cancer Foundation that we started and um, just everything along the way kind of tied into what I love to do. And it may may have an image of me being very professional because I took everything very seriously, like I wasn't going to let this go. So I was very serious about my snowboarding and passion and not wanting to mess it up or slack off or have it go away because people, you know, I watched young kids come and go that party too hard or didn't take it seriously or whatever. And, and I uh, just loved snowboarding so much. So it was a it was a game changer for me to be allowed to follow my dreams like that with 100% support from my parents. Do you know where you got that outlook from to continue to be a go-getter and pursue things like starting your own brands in snowboarding when there were so few women in the sport back then? Yeah. It was just ingrained in me. That's how I was brought up. Like my brother and I were starting companies when we were in eighth grade. Like we started making Hawaiian shorts and then we made, because we did sewing class and then mm -hmm. we decided to do like, we always did that in our family. Like my parents, we'd start doodling and designing go-karts. And then by the next day we were like tearing off wood off our fence so we could build a go-kart with my dad and taking wheels off our lawnmower so we could make it roll down the hill. Like we just did it that way. We were always hands-on and a doer. And my brother, um, when he was, I'm three and a half years older than him. And when he was around 10 or 11, we discovered that he had epilepsy and he has a movie called Open Space. Um, it's online. It's a 40-minute movie, and you can watch. And he tells his story of his upbringing and his story with this condition. And when our family held that condition where my brother was having seizures, the doctors wanted to put him on medicine. He was on such medicine that he was just kind of withdrew. He had glossy eyes. He actually stopped speaking for about a year. And during that year, when we were trying to help him, um, we just started communicating with him with whatever way he knew how. So with him, it was building tree forts and building things with his hands and using that as our communication. And we knew how to communicate in that way with him. And so we just dove into that and we stopped treating him like he was sick. We just accepted him how he was and just met him in his world. And then he started coming out of it a little bit. And so it was a really a miracle that 
the drugs and all that stuff wasn't what cured him from that, whether he outgrew it or whatever. But by the time he was 16, he was um, able to get his license. Um, he was able to re-enter school and finish graduating with his class. And snowboarding was something that we were good at. And mm -hmm. he was involved in that in those years. And we were good at it. And having being a teenager and having something that you're passionate and good at gives you so much confidence that you just have to wrap your arms around it. So we um, we just were raised that way to to take on and hold on to what was real to us and just move forward with it no matter what. Mm -hmm. Do you think you've drawn from that experience how your parents helped your brother with his epilepsy as you continue to work with Addison and her scoliosis? Absolutely, for sure. We um, we actually went to a uh, institute as a family back in the back in the eighties um, when that was happening, and their main focus was to shift our idea of treating Michael like he was sick, and and not let that make make us unhappy like why you can choose to be happy or you can choose to be sad about it which do you think is going to help michael mm -hmm. like we have to be happy and live a happy life with his condition and make it work instead of just drowning in doctor to doctor to doctor and all these drugs and all this stuff like we had to find our own happiness in it and so I definitely am the kind of person that like the cup is half full, let's find the positive, but what if we did this? Like always trying to make it work and find a, a, a balance because the um, it could take you down. It's, it's enough there to make you sad every day or know that she might be limited, Addison might be limited in what she can do in the future or, um, because of the deformity that can come with scoliosis or things like that. So um, I definitely, I mean, everything that I was raised on and the way we helped my brother and the way my parents raised us helps me 100% in this situation, no doubt. Mm -hmm. And I still continue to have that support of my family with her. My mom and dad live 30 minutes from us from the time Addison was two years old, she's had sleepovers there once a week uh, for the last, you know, 12 years. And we're very connected to my parents and they're a huge part of my family. I talk to them every day and, and my dad and I go to the movies once a week, which was one thing we really missed during shutdown. So we got an outdoor uh, projector and a screen and did movies out in our yard. And so we definitely are still a family unit altogether. And you started snowboarding in the 1980s, right? Yes, it was the 1985-86 winter, and I was in high school, and my I my crowd was the snow uh, skateboarding crowd. So I hung out with all the skateboarders, and that was kind of a punk rock scene back then. And I was just drawn to skateboarding and the people surrounding it because they were artists and didn't care what people thought and just kind of making their own mark. And my mom actually mentioned a snowboard to us because she was buying us coats or something, I think at like Big Five Sporting Goods or something in Carmichael and uh, near Sacramento. 
California. And she said, you got to check out this thing. It's like skateboarding on snow and they rent it. They rent snowboards. And so we went to go rent them to try it because we weren't a ski family. We'd been a couple times, but mm -hmm. we mostly went up to Tahoe to go snowboard, uh, snowmo um, tubing, like sledding and stuff like that. So we weren't really ski resort people. And so we did go to the store and said, we want to rent two snowboards. And they said, oh, well, we only have one and it you can rent it. So my brother and I rented it and we shared it and we went up. Um, they wouldn't let us on the ski resort um, at Sugar uh, Soda Springs was where we went. And I think it, they did allow snowboarding back then. Um, that was one of the resorts that allowed snowboarding, but maybe the ticket window um, person wasn't aware because she said, yeah, no, you can't take that sled up on the the lift. So we just hiked up along the side and I had moon boots on. And every time we fell down, the board would rip out of my boots and I'd be sitting there in my socks on the side of the mountain. <laughs> and my mom would go get the board <laughs> and walk up. And then my brother would have a turn and the board had fins. It had three fins. It was a Burton Elite uh, 140. And um, yeah, it was um, a rough cut of a snowboard now. <laughs> I mean, no wonder we look so funny snowboarding. We were just trying to hold our balance with our arms out, you know, in that stance. So, yeah. But boards evolved quickly from then. That was kind of a real beginning for me and a, and kind of a beginning for snowboarding because everything before that was um, not on the radar. Now we were on the ski resorts and, and starting to take notice and uh, over that next, like, three years, you know, it really started to blow up. Did you fall in love with snowboarding that first time or did it take a couple times before you got the hang of it? I fell in love with it when my mom mentioned it. Okay. I, I mean, I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like falling on snow sounded way better than falling on concrete. <laughs> <laughs> So, and like, that's just how we like something new like that was exciting. That's why those like first five years of my snowboarding experience were just irreplaceable. Like every time we went, something new was happening. We'd run into other snowboarders that had duct taped like foam to their high back to get more forward lean. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we didn't know it was called forward lean. We were just like, oh, that can make you turn better. Yeah. And, you know. So there's new tricks happening. There was snowboarding contests ha popping up. There was more and more snowboarders on the hill so we could ride up the chairlift with snowboarders instead of getting stuck with the skiers who hated us. So it was, um, it was a very, very exciting time. Yeah, that, that animosity between skiers and snowboarders is something that um, made it to my generation. I'm in my uh -huh. early 30s. But, you know, I learned from my brothers and I learned from my dad. Yeah. And, you know, you just, you didn't like skiers, but now everybody rides together. Yeah. It's, isn't that crazy how it shifted? Um, I am just, I would almost mock the skiers <laughs> as in silence uh -huh. because I would be the one that would come snowboarding down and I'd see a skier that just totally wiped out yard sale. There's stuff's everywhere. And I would be the snowboarder that'd come and pick up their ski and bring it to them just to show them like, Hey, snowboards are nice too. Like just to throw it back in their face 
not that it was that one skier that would holler at us, like get off our mountain, mm -hmm. but we got a lot of flack from the skiers. And at the time we didn't care. Like, you know, we had green hair and mohawks. Like <laughs> why, why would we even care what a skier thought of us? Except unless it didn't allow us on the mountain that we wanted to have fun on. So, um, it didn't bother me that they that we had such a bad rap with skiers. It almost was part of it, but I would just go out of my way to be super nice to skiers just to just see the look on their face when the snowboarder was the one that stopped and helped them get their stuff that was all over the hill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> kill them with kindness. Yeah, kill them with kindness. And how long was it until you started competing? Um, I started competing in, I think my first trophy is from 1986. And that was a contest at Donner Ski Ranch, and it was called Raging at the Ranch. And there was men's amateur, men's pro, there was women's open. And then I think by the second contest, there was more than five of us. So we did women's amateur and women's pro. Like you just clicked whatever box you wanted to when you entered. It wasn't like you had to prove you were a professional or had sponsors. It wasn't like that. Like I was sponsored by Go Skate Skateboard Shop because they gave me a free hoodie sweatshirt and some stickers. And eventually they would pay my entry fee. And then it just start, kind of evolved from there. And it quickly started happening. There was a Colorado um, series. I think it was called the Rocky Mountain Series. There was a contest, the World Championships out in Breckenridge um, in 87. And that's where I really realized that snowboarding was a worldwide thing. There was Europeans there. There was, um, that was like the Craig Kellys and, mm -hmm. you know, all of that happening. And I had been in like three contests before that. And so you know, if you were a girl and can snowboard, like there was about, I think there was maybe 20 girls there. Um, there might've been more, but it quickly started to grow and the scene started to grow. And then you would started to recognize the girls that were there. And then, you know, there kind of started to be tricks invented and things that were happening that would win you a contest. Like my big move in my first contest was an alley-oop slide at the bottom of the pipe you know, and that got mm -hmm. me third place. So the second we could get air out of the pipe and have a couple tricks, then it was on. <laughs> you know, what's so great about that? What's so great about listening to old stories of, of snowboarding, you know, when it was in its infancy is hearing stories like that, you know, doing an alley-oop at the bottom of the pipe because you guys were inventing these tricks you know, these tricks were brand new back then and there was so much energy and there was so much uh, brand new liveliness that was involved in the sport back then. Yeah, it was pretty exciting times. And a lot of the tricks came from skateboarding, which mm -hmm. is what I knew. And so a lot of the tricks were named after the skateboarding moves, like an indie air, a backside air and, um, al you know, alley-oop or a rocket, things like that. And then, then there started being some inventions of like a J-Terra error that Mike Jacoby did and, you know, some different grabs, like crazy grabs, like spaghetti error where you'd put your hand through your 
feet and grab your toe edge, <laughs> like stuff like that. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, really there weren't, we weren't spinning around a million times or doing, you know, we didn't have, I mean, if you put the pros of today in the pipes of yesterday and see what they look like riding those pipes, <laughs> I don't know if they could do it either. It was just a feat to get down the pipe. Their transitions were always bumpy. They were all, all the half pipes were dug with shovels. There were kind of highway hits was kind of the first half pipes would always have a highway hit. Um, the very first pipes just had highway hits all the way down where you just follow the track and get a little air and follow the track and get a little air. Um, not until further, you know, a couple years uh, later into the like 89, uh, 88, 89, 90s, were we really riding some uh, good transitions that were consistent and as the half pipe got better, then the tricks were possible. So then we, there was more air to get and more spins to do and more tricks to pop off. And um, so it just kind of started evolving quickly with so much happening at each contest. And, and this is a time when there was no parks at ski resorts, there were no half pipes just because mm -hmm. it was the half pipe was built with shovels because there was going to be a contest. So I would show up at a contest, and if I had a new trick in mind or I was going to try and do a double grab, I was going to try it during practice at the contest. It wasn't like you were just going to go hit the half pipe um, at the resort to practice in between contests. That didn't exist. So every time we were at a contest, that's when everything started to progress. And how many other women were you competing against back then? Well, it started, I think the first contest I was in had four or five. Um, by the time I got to the Worlds, I think there was 20-something girls from all over the world, which just blew my mind. And then, then it started to get into the early 90s where there were invitations to the contest like you had to qualify to get to the world cup in japan and you had to be invited to get to the x games and things like that so um it made it a little bit harder for the up-and-comer to come up people um like janamaya and these little girl rippers that were coming up on the scene um they would come and get permission to forerun the contest just to put them out on the stage. Like Sean White, he would come and forerun the contest. He wasn't in the contest. He was the forerunner. And they would allow him to go down for like a little show of this little kid mm -hmm. who could rip air. So um, any way that you could get on that stage and show people because, you know, the owners of all the contests, uh, the companies are sitting there watching the contest. All the writers know everybody in the industry. So if you were coming up on the scene and you got to drop in or show your stuff, that's where you got seen. And then next thing you know, somebody's calling so-and-so and they're getting you sponsor. You get a free board. And it, you know, this is way before any YouTube or internet. Um, this is when we had to wait for the magazine to come out to read about the contest and the rankings and everything mm -hmm. that happened at the contest. So kids that were, subscribe to the magazines would wait anxiously for the next months to find out who won the X, maybe not the X Games, but before that, like the Rocky Mountain series and all those stories. Because by the time the X Games came around, 
that was like the first time that the snowboarding world was exposed to the world. Like that was mm -hmm. 110 stations or something crazy. Um, you know, millions of people watching you um, at once right then and there. So that was kind of what blew it up. And because it was called the X games following that was X everything like extreme pizza and like the gap had snowboards <laughs> and extreme this and like, yeah, all of a sudden the banners that were lining the half pipes were like Taco Bell and the army or the Marines or like, you know, AT&T. And we mm -hmm. were like, it replaced the banners that said Sims and go skate and the local skate shop. And, and so all of a sudden this big industry shift happened where the world realized that it, we were not a fad, that we were not going away and there was something behind this and resorts were opening up left and right to snowboarding because of ticket sales. And all of a sudden it was families that were snowboarding. It wasn't just the punk rock kids that were rebelling and their parents could go ski at, you know, Aspen and drop their kids off at the other resort. Like it became a big deal and there was a huge shift and then it was just like game on. How did that transition make you feel? We were shocked by it. We were like, what do they want to do with us? Like, we're just a bunch of punk rock snowboarder kids. Like, somebody's getting sponsored by AT&T? Like, what? Like, it didn't, uh, I didn't see the big picture from that vantage point. Like, we weren't sure what was happening. And then when snowboarding was announced that it was going to be an Olympics, then it kind of settled in like, okay, this is really actually going to change snowboarding. Mm -hmm. This is happening. We didn't know how to react to that. We were like, we don't wear uniforms and have coaches. Like, what do you mean? Um, so there was definitely mixed feelings about the Olympics coming in. Um, I tried out for the Olympics. Um, I didn't make the cut. I was kind of out of my half pipe competition for a couple years and had moved on to the X Games and focused on backcountry filming and powder riding and the big air uh, at the X Games. So I wasn't dialed into my half pipe, but I embraced it and it was another opportunity to see what was going to happen. And so some people um, boycotted it, some people embraced it. Um, and once that happened and that definitely shifted everything to where, I mean, now present day, there's little kids that want to be Sean White and they have a board that fits them and they're seven and they have gear that pants that fit them and boards that fit them and little boot baby boots that are so mm -hmm. cute. And they can go into snowboarding um, schools and have camps and coaches and, you know, they're Olympians that dreamt of being Olympian as they grew up snowboarding and they did it. And so that, that open opportunity is there for, for that. And I just really embrace that the experience I had with snowboarding, like I love snowboarding. I felt free by snowboarding. I could be whoever I wanted to be on a snowboard. I could prove myself on a snowboard that I could accomplish these things. Um, it's such a freeing feeling flying down a mountain, um, especially in untracked powder, like 
people were quitting their day jobs to be able to snowboard all the time. And so for me, that needs to be experienced by people that mm -hmm. can't be held in this little niche of uh, to us and just have it be this core group of things like it needed to go out into the world in that way. And it did commercialize it a little bit and it shifted things, but I was still snowboarding and I got to, I was still living my dream. So, um, as long as I got to do what I wanted to do with it, everything was good with me. At any point back then, did it feel exploitative? I, I just have the view of taking, taking it all in. I, I, well, I think our biggest challenge was, um, being a girl in that scene where we had people actually tell us that we couldn't enter the contest or we couldn't go off the jump. Uh, there was that one contest in the Aaron style in Austria in Innsbruck and Shannon and I, this is mid nineties. And we actually got told that no girls allowed. And we were like, Oh hell no. What did they just say? Like mm -hmm. we're sneaking up to the top of the jump and Brian and Gucci and Jamie Lynn and all those guys were like, you got to have strong legs, like powered up girls. Like they helped us, but it was, those were the challenges out of all of it was just pushing for women's equipment, pushing for a spot for women to be given the stage, same stage to show our stuff. Women are very powerful in our balance and our grace. Uh, we were made to snowboard. So let us show our stuff. When you think back on those moments when, like the one at Aaron Style that you just described, do you think any of those moments really help pave the way for equity in snowboarding? For women? Yeah. I think that that moment for me was a pushing point. And I think simultaneously all the women in the sport at that time we were all trying to do our best we were all trying to learn new tricks and go bigger and better and you know in the mid 90s i was just trying to keep with my posse which was 90 percent guys half the time mm -hmm. so all of those people all of us elevated the space and even at the first x games I think 18 girls signed up for the big air competition. It was down south in Southern California. It was icy conditions. The jump that they build, we watch them build it and fine tune it. And we were like, that's the biggest thing I've ever jumped. I, the biggest jump I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. We were all scared to death. I thought I was going to get hurt. And for practice, only four girls showed up to get their bibs out of the 18. Like we can't back out now what then no girls showed up they're not going to give us a category next year what does that say so we all decided to do it and you know it wasn't we weren't spinning off the jump i was just doing a method and holding on for dear life and i got third place i think barrett won that year and that was a moment for me where i really recognized like we got to do this otherwise there's not going to be another chance to do it again and so sure enough, we, the four of us did it. They had a show on TV to show the top competitors 
and the podium people, you know, it wasn't a full show because it wasn't a half hour worth of footage. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we did make a show for ESPN and they showed us and and it grew from there to where it was a, a big deal. So I then continued on and won the X Games Big Air at Crested Butte in 98 doing my 720, which if I would have never been given a jump that big to start on, I would have never been able to spin around twice on my board. None of the jumps would have allowed that, that I had up at Mount Hood to practice on. And so part of that pushing through, even when I was scared or worried, I really just had to find my zone and, and do it. I mean, all athletes go through that where, and you definitely have days where you're on and days where you're off. So if contest day is a day you're off, you have to dig deep to find find your balance with that and, and decide to push forward or not because you can't hesitate halfway down the run. Mm -hmm. Did you draw from anything or find any inspiration in those times when you weren't feeling up to par or maybe you were lapathetic? Yeah, well, I think 100% I leaned into the other girls mm -hmm. on the scene. Like that, they... I just downloaded some footage from a VHS tape that I found and it was my X games footage. And the announcer kept saying the, the camaraderie amongst the girls are always uh, high-fiving and you just don't see this in ice skating and other sports. You know, the commentator was just making a real remark about what she was seeing of us as athletes about how we support each other. And it has been said over and over again, through all of our experiences that we really cheered each other on. We were each other's cheerleaders. And so when I'm at the top of the jump worried about how big it is, how I'm going to land, how icy it is, how hard it hurt crashing during practice, I'm not sitting there by myself at the top of the jump trying to get through it. Mm -hmm. it I'm sitting there with Barrett Christie and Shannon Dunn and Michelle Taggart going, dude, it's so gnarly and sketchy. You can do it, T. You can do it. We got it. We got it. Just focus. That's what was happening. And I'm so grateful that that's what was happening because if it was the opposite and super competitive, gnarly, like I wouldn't have stuck with it. I would, I, that's not me. So if, if snowboarding would have already been a sport and been so competitive, I would have just stuck to the backcountry. The fact that it was so open and welcoming and had that bond between all the girls is what pushed us forward. I always thought that was so cool and so um, encouraging the, the camaraderie between the women in snowboarding at these competitions where, you know, you all are high-fiving each other and saying encouraging things to each other at the top of the course. Yeah, it's that's something else. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, the snowboarding, because it's just started from nothing, we had nothing to lose. Like, why not be like that? It's not like there's only one podium to get. We were all taking our turns up there, and it was awesome. Mm -hmm. When you think about that time and how you were only one of a few women in snowboarding at that time, what memories come to mind? Um, well, 
for me, I think of the equipment a lot because we were just cracking up over like how darn big the pants were and like when the time when it hit the fad when everybody had the wide stance and the big pants and the chain wallets mm -hmm. that was a fat i mean a full-on thing and so before women's snowboarding clothing was even thought of we were just cracking up because we were sponsored like i was sponsored by swag clothing and these big pants, they were just like, we were just swimming in them. So we were just like sewing them and stitching them up and oh my gosh, and this and that. And so funny times like that come up when I think like there was just a few of us just, you know, trying to be feminine in a men's world mm -hmm. and making our mark with this equipment that we had. And the second that we did get women's equipment and a board that was narrower for our feet and lighter and flexible to our weight, then we accelerated in our, you know, abilities tenfold, like it, everything kind of shot off. Um, once we did get the right equipment, it wasn't like we had the wrong equipment, but it just wasn't the best for us. Mm -hmm. So I just have funny memories of us just like makeshifting all our gear all the time just trying to to get get it so it worked <laughs> so. you know i i mentioned this earlier about how much i like hearing old stories of you know snowboarding from the 80s and the 90s and something that always comes to mind is how there was such a big crossover between music and snowboarding back then. You know, I spent some time going through your social media and I saw a picture you posted a while back with you and um, MCA of the Beastie Boys. Yes. And I know that you you also went out with Dave Grohl. So it, it, it's it's always cool to me that there was, there was such a... Um, an intimate crossover between music and snowboarding. I think they're so connected. Like those two things go together so well, like at the snowboarding contest, like for me to snowboard while rocking out on the loudspeaker, they were playing all our music. Like that's like being at a rock concert, like in a mosh pit or, mm -hmm. you know, the thrill of that. And so music always ties into the snowboarding world so freely and connecting with Adam um, and having him just uh, embrace the snowboarding community and share his music with us and giving us tickets to his shows and him riding with us in Utah. And he rented a room for me in the nineties and just down to earth. And you just kind of realize like, these musicians that we looked up to and rocked out to on our cassette tape in the eighties. And now he's here snowboarding. He's just so down to earth. And it's so fun to know that he followed his passion with his music and, um, his parents were the same way in supporting him and his music and his friends and his group that he clung on to in New York. And, um, I think that, I mean, many times in my career, like I snowboarded, at a No Doubt concert in San Francisco in an arena on a fake snowboarding jump while No Doubt played. And mm -hmm. and then the uh, MTV Awards, uh, MTV had a an event out in Texas with BMX and a stage with music and 
I think it was like Busta Rhymes and like all the music that we were into and they had a fable together with which all the dirt bikers and the BMXers and the skaters and the snowboarders and then all the bands mm-hmm. like the energy was just elevated like that's the exact match like putting all that stuff together so um we started our boarding for breast cancer and of course we turned to the music industry and the snowboarding industry and we had an event with a stage at the bottom of the ski hill and a snowboard jump and um the industries have always been connected and um even when um i was dating dave like he was a musician who grew up writing in his journals and um recording himself speaking and turned into music for him and he followed his passion he knew he wanted to be a musician from when he was little he had that dream and he would come into the snowboarding scene and be like oh i hope they're i hope this they they all think i'm cool like i want to fit in too you know so this goes both ways where everybody just is has an attraction to each other because they're just somebody who's also following their dreams it's not just that they're a musician and you're like oh that's cool it's just like those kind of people or who I want to hang out with, like those, those connections feel right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's that mutual respect that I think that you touched on earlier with you being an artist and recognizing that artistry and snowboarding when you first got into it. Yeah. And it definitely were my people. And I explain that to Addison as she's growing into herself and discovering who she is as a person and a, and a young lady. I mean, she's definitely um, becoming an adult soon. And I said, you got to find the people that make you feel comfortable that you can be yourself around. That's mm-hmm. your people. That's who you want to hang out with. Those are the friends that have your back and will be there for you when you have tough times and be there for you when you celebrate your good times. And for me, it was the skateboard crowd that turned into the snowboard crowd that involved the music people. And, um, you just got to find your people. And Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a common thread with music and, and action sports and creativity and, um, it all kind of binds us together. So another thing I came across in your social media was a photo of you and Shannon Dunn Downing from a shoot you two did. And you said, these photos kickstarted us wanting to show who we were, fierce women, charging on our snowboards in a time when we were token girls in the rat pack of boys, finding our way while snowboarding year round, traveling for contests and powder. What do you mean by these photos kickstarted us wanting to show who we were? That was because that photo shoot, um, up until that photo shoot, I was like a tomboy. I didn't recognize full heartedly my feminine um, power, maybe you would even say like, I was just one of the guys like I always had guy friends I had BMX gangs I grew up dirt biking and skateboarding and so I did want to follow the boys around on their snowboards they made me ride faster like I was trying to keep up and 
up until that, it was a prom photo shoot when, and Lisa Hudson set it up where we were dressed in dress, prom dress, vintage prom dresses. We had hair and makeup. Mm-hmm. We got to be pretty. We got to be dressed up and we did these photos and we did this ad campaign where here's a photo of Shannon and I dressed up in prom dresses like girly girls. And on the opposite page is me dropping a 30 foot cliff on my snowboard being a badass. Mm-hmm. And so when we did that photo shoot, I realized like almost like it's okay to show that you're a girl as a girly girl. Like I didn't have to be a punk rock girl. And so it was okay to dress up or be feminine in a different way than I knew because I was always a tomboy up until I kind of grew into that a little bit. And so that was a turning point for me, but also for the industry, because we used those photos to show the industry that we were girls 100% down to our prom dresses that I'll wear walking down a railroad in the middle of the summer Mm -hmm. for a photo shoot to show it. Like, so it kind of was a turning point for me where I wasn't scared to not be a tomboy, you know, and for the industry, it definitely got the attention like, okay, now they're snowboarding with pigtails and a pink Gore-Tex outfit on with butterflies and sunflowers on our snowboards instead of all the stuff that we had before that was all guy stuff that we had to alter and, and make work. Like now we could really show what we were all about because we were 100% head to toe girl. Mm-hmm. So we had the equipment and we had um, the inner fire to, to show it 100% and not hold back or not hide behind my tomboy look or whatever it was. So that was a big uh, moment when we launched prom and Shannon and I came out with our pro models in 94, it really made a splash on the industry. And up until then people were like, Oh, you know, women's snowboarding is such a small piece of the pie. Well, who's going to grab that piece of the pie? Cause nobody's grabbing onto it yet. Mm-hmm. So let's make the gear. And sure enough, it also empowered more girls to even start snowboarding. I, get messages still to this day of people messaging me on social media they're like I saw you in a magazine and my boyfriend snowboarded at the time and I saw you in a magazine and I thought I can do that too and they started snowboarding so um I think it had a big impact in the movement that the snowboarding industry was going yeah I think it did too I think that seeing an image like that shows people that also look like the people in those photos, you and Shannon, that they can be individuals. They can be themselves as well. They don't have to co-opt, you know, the clothing and the brands that the men do. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, it was like giving them the tool to do it. Mm -hmm. Like you can do it. You know, it was um, definitely inspired people to get out there and ride and, you know, show your ponytail. Don't tuck it away. I had my big red flowy ponytail following me around all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't scared to let it ride. And you and Shannon, Shannon Dundowning were the first women in snowboarding to get your own pro model snowboard, correct? We had our boards come out the same season in 94 
And there was a pro model with Lisa Vinciguerra um, on Checkered Pig the season before or earlier that year. I'm not exactly sure, but it did come out before, but it was a European company um, that was promoted uh, through those threads. Mm -hmm. So when Shannon and I came out with our board, I think because um, we were with Sims and Burton um, and Shannon had a big ad campaign behind her board that it really made an overall big splash in the industry. And it was just a time when all of that was just about to happen. And I feel lucky that I was one of the girls that got to be a part of that first launch with the first women's equipment coming down the pipe. Mm -hmm. What kinds of conversations were you having at Sims during that time, during the time of your pro model? Well, I actually had my first pro model came out with Kemper snowboards. Oh, really? Okay. And Shannon was on Sims. And then Shannon started dating uh, Dave Downing, who was on Burton, and they um, ended up collaborating and Shannon moved to Burton and I moved to Sims for the second year. Okay. So that kind of shifted quickly after that first launch. And then I had a Sims pro model up until 2000, I think. Um, There's quite a few of them. I did one each year with my artwork. Um, of testing the board and making sure it was right and getting a, a sample made early so we could get photos on it to promote it for the fall the next year. And um, I loved all of that stuff. I really enjoyed um, all of that. And I got to be in the designing with the clothing with prom and that launch and um, and the boarding for breast cancer stuff really brought a group of the industry girls together. And um, I loved all of that stuff. So for your first pro model with Kemper, your your initial one, was there ever a feeling of, you know, everyone's doing something very revolutionary right now? Or were the conversations more directed toward, you know, yeah, Tina's great. She's she's a great writer. She's getting her own pro model. It was more of we didn't know what was going to happen. It could have failed and they would have never given any woman a snowboard pro model again. Who knew? We didn't know. So it was definitely unknown. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was an opportunity because we were seeing the guys having pro models and I wanted that too. And I felt like I was deserving of it and helped design it and do the whole thing. Um, But it was unknown on how the industry was going to react to it. But the second that we got a glimpse from the reaction that it was positive and that it was being embraced mm-hmm. and that they were even talking about it like they were, it was a hyped up conversation at that SIA trade show. And it was happening. And so right after we realized like, okay, this is something, then we just went crazy with it. Then we, you know, then doors were opening and instead of getting to design one coat, we were designing a whole line of coats and outerwear mm-hmm. and streetwear and um, different sponsorships came into play. And there was, you know, pink watches and all these different things started happening um, for women's equipment. And it could have happened five years later if nobody took a chance on it. So 
it was just the right timing for those companies to step forward with the confidence that they could give it a test and and that the industry recognized it as a real need for the equipment. I mean, up till then, we were wearing all those baggy clothes and huge boards. Mm -hmm. So it was just really good timing of the whole thing. And the and Shannon um, uh, was a great person to promote. She was winning contests and we were, you know, getting on the podium holding those boards. So that was a big deal, too. You and Shannon sound like you had, or maybe you still have, a very close relationship. We do. We definitely um, connected right away in friendship um, in the early days. And she tells a story where she went up to the contest in Colorado and she had seen me in a magazine and she talked to me at the contest and I had like Dayglo orange pants on and my scrunchie that hold my ponytail was also Dayglo orange like I had it matching mm -hmm. and she remembers that when she met me that my scrunchie on my ponytail matched my pants and so it's funny that you know she was looking up to me as somebody that was a pro and so but once she started competing and we started seeing each other more often like then she was just right alongside me like we were doing this and she was pushing 540s in the half pipe before anybody else which all got us all started on spinning more in the half pipe and she and i every single time we see each other i just saw her last weekend for the boarding for breast cancer skate the lake event and she and i hung out all weekend and we just pick up right where we left off and we um are both just like after the good life like being happy and having fun and so we are just joyful when we're together and and tell old, old stories and was, she was roller skating and so we were taking funny photos and like just dorking off like we usually do and um and have serious conversations about life and kids and family and you know along the way so she's one of my girls i want to grow old with like that's what we're doing we stay connected and and make sure to be in each other's lives mm-hmm so you named your autobiography Pretty Good for a Girl. Why did you choose that name? That was the comment I got a lot back in the day because I would come ripping down the run and at the bottom of the hill, I'd unstrap my board and get in line and somebody would notice my ponytail and say, whoa, you're pretty good for a girl. Like you didn't fall over and take out the fence at the bottom. Like what were they expecting? I don't know, but they somehow we were surprised that I was a girl and I was good on a snowboard. So when I heard that, instead of it discouraging me, I really, it empowered me because I was like, damn right, I'm a girl, try and keep up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, that's that's what it was for me. So it definitely pushed me forward. Um, you know, I, I would have no problem going hitting a jump underneath, you know, a natural kicker underneath a chairlift and throwing a big old method air and landing and having those skiers look at me from their lift. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And your method has kind of taken on a life of its own. What do you think about what it's become? You mean my method air, like the grab, the method? Yeah. Yeah. The method. Oh, well, have you ever done a method? I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like the best feeling ever. So there's just something about the way a backside method floats you through the air. Mm -hmm. um, and 
that was kind of my go-to grab that I felt the most comfortable with in the air. So when we were up in Alaska and, you know, Justin Hostnick's down there getting ready to take photos of me and I'm up at the top of the cliff going, man, this is a big one, kind of throwing snowballs off the tip to see where they land and see how far I'm going to drop. I'm not going to just go do a 720 off of a jump like that. I'm going to do a method because mm-hmm. <laughs> it's big. So I'm pushing myself just for the height of the air and I'm going to do my most comfortable air. So a lot of photographs uh, from Alaska and stuff that was really big for me at the time to do has me float in a method air through the whole thing because that was the thing that I knew I could get off the jump and land because it was such a natural balance for me in that position. Mm-hmm. So I do love the method air. Well, Tina, that does it for my questions. This has been, it's been an honor. Oh, thank you so much. Fun to talk about old times. <laughs> you know, I, uh, you, you mentioned Alaska a few times and, uh, I know we really didn't get a chance to, to delve into Alaska, but I know that you, you spent some time up there. Yes, my part of my heart is in Alaska all the time. I've had the most amazing experiences of my snowboarding life in Alaska, just in awe of the mountains and the power of the mountains where I can stand on top of those peaks. And instead of feeling like a speck of dirt on this crazy universe, I feel like I'm bigger than the world. Mm-hmm. And that's what Alaska does for me. And it's... Um, it's a special spot. That's why people flock there to try and get, they will sit there for 14 days in the rain to get one day of sun powder riding in Alaska because it's that good. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, I'll never, never forget my experiences in Alaska. You can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.